welcome everyone to Mystery, a podcast about myths and history. I am one of your hosts, Bryant, here for a Podicus Magnus episode. It's Friday. You're ready for it. Peter's here. Yay. So's Cammy. Oh, Hi. there she is. Hi, everyone. Couldn't wait for me to introduce you, could you? Nope. She's That's very exciting. You called me a host last time, so. Right, yeah. Right now, you know, I'm I'm reading. Um, I like to every summer. It's it's becoming a thing now. I like to listen to Agatha Christie Poirot books, and they use the word ejaculate a lot, but it's more of like a interjection. Right. So, right. but they'll. So I was about to say that you ejaculated there. You you were like I I didn't introduce you. You just you ejaculated. You came in to the mm-hmm. conversation. So welcome. <laughs> Exploding onto the scene. <laughs> All right, so mystery. Let me uh, explain what this show is because you're extremely confused by now. This is the first episode. Yeah. (laughs) And Apple, please don't flag us. Um, (laughs) I think we're explicit already. Mystery with an IE. We're here to talk about myths and history. Every week, we pick a random topic, subject, myth, legend, John Henry story what have you and we give it to you uh in a a fun way and then we'll kind of talk about the history behind it and these special podicus magnus episodes we have our third wheel peter join us for our tricycle of fun i love that i was really proud of that too i'm on a roll of fun yeah so we've got another we're i'll i'll tear this band-aid off it's we're in greece i know some of you might be like oh gosh Greek. I don't know. Uh, but Again. yeah, <laughs> but uh, this is a great companion episode to last week because it's all about punishment and hell. So it's just yes. so nice to talk about during this <laughs> wonderful <laughs> pandemic where we're all social distancing and stuck in loops of being uh, at home. We are um, all in Tartarus right now. Yeah, essentially. So, um, uh, can Peter, will you remind us a little bit what we talked about last week? Uh, last week we talked about Tantalus and Sisyphus. And um, during our After, Do- After Dark program, I read from yes. Virgil's Aeneid, and that talked about the underworld as well. So we're having a underworld Just... uh, smorgasbord. Yeah, great. So... Um... And now today we are we're we're going on with that theme. Cami, will you introduce the the will you pronounce these words for us? These fun Greek sure, words. It's they're not hard. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Fantastic. So this is and I'm excited because I I literally don't know this story. I mean I I well I kind of get to because of the research I've done, but I I this is the first time. <laughs> I've kind of got into it. The only time I knew Orpheus was the Venture Brothers character. So shout out to anyone who understands that. See, Brian never does his homework. He never does the reading. So he's a, he's a nice stand-in for How do you <laughs> how do you think I got into grad school? <laughs> I comes yeah, in with the cliff notes. Have yep. To do the reading on this exactly. You're right, yeah. Just just a base knowledge is fine for the uh for yeah. the history part, I think. Right. Yeah, no, it's cool. I'll talk a little bit about Tartarus and pain and suffering and misery. Um just by personal experience. But grad school. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. So, well, excellent. Peter, uh, I believe, is going to 
kick it off on the Orpheus and Eurydice tale. Yes, I am. So, since ancient times, it's been tradition to invoke the muses at the beginning of any creative endeavor. So it's only proper that we ask them to bless this, our humble podcast. I oh, believe. muses! You're, what, you're stepping on my line, dude. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, muses! Daughters nine of the powerful god Zeus, daughter of Nemesine, titan goddess of memory. From you, all art, music, and poetry flow down to us like a sweet breeze across a fertile meadow. Your influence fills our hearts and minds with imagination as a steady breath kindles a spark into a raging fire. You inspire us. Imagine, thank you, (laughs) imagine being the child of a muse, having that much innate creative power and talent. Such a man was Orpheus, son of Apollo and (laughs) Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. Orpheus became known as the father of songs. While the god Hermes had created the lyre, the yoke-shaped harp, Orpheus was said to have perfected it. Orpheus's music even had the power to save lives. While accompanying Jason on his quest for the Golden Fleece, Orpheus saved his fellow Argonauts from ruin by outsinging the sirens, whose intoxicating songs drew sailors to wreck and ruin. In time, Orpheus came to love the nymph Eurydice, and finally the day of their wedding had arrived. It was a beautiful day and the hills were in bloom. Naiads, the nymphs of the water, had emerged from a nearby stream to dance with the newlyweds. But all was not right, as an unwelcome guest slithered its way towards the celebration. Eurydice, twirling as she danced, stepped on the tail of a serpent. It sank its teeth into her heel, and its poison went straight into her fluttering heart stopping it dead. The winged god Hymen, blesser of weddings, held his sacred torch above the fallen bride. The flame of his torch was said to ensure a long and fruitful marriage, but on this day it would only ignite Eurydice's funeral pyre. Orpheus mourned for his fallen bride for many days, and his songs of lament pierced the very heavens. Finally, he undertook to journey to the underworld in an attempt to win back his lover. Near the town of Peloponnesus, there was rumored to be a gate to the underworld, and Orpheus set out to discover it. He found the Tainarian gate beneath a great outcropping of rock on a mountainside. A cold wind seemed to breathe in and out of the mouth of the cave, both, both drawing in the young poet and then repelling him. As he descended into the darkness, Orpheus passed by thin shadows, spirits of those who had not received a proper burial. They must wait on the banks of the river Styx for 100 years before they may cross. These are the Stygian realms where the river stands like a black mirror, reflecting in the dim light the jagged, jutting ceiling of black rock. Charon, The grim boatman stands on the prow of his brittle skiff and silently chooses the spirits who are allowed to cross 
with a point from his bony finger. After a long and perilous journey, Orpheus at last came to the great throne room of Hades and Persephone. The two gods, lords of the underworld, reclined on a couch that appeared to have grown out of the very floor of the great cavern. Their encrusted throne bristled with the spires of stalagmites and glistened with the hidden gems of the deep earth. As Orpheus stood at the feet of the looming gods, the eternal couple waited silently for him to speak. But speak he did not. Orpheus cradled his lyre in the crook of one arm, lightly strummed the strings and began to sing. His song did not deceive with winning words, but spoke of the painful truths of love. He sang of his journey through the underworld, not as a sightseer, but as a wife-seeker, how his love was so strong that it made mourning impossible. He sang of the love between Hades and Persephone, a love so strong and terrible that it threatened to freeze the earth in eternal winter. He sang of the Moirae, the three goddesses of fate, how Clotho spun the thread of Eurydice's life, how Lachesis measured it carefully, and how Atropos cut it tragically short. Perhaps Eurydice's thread could be mended once again. After all, our thread of life is like a leash that will eventually draw us home again here beneath the earth. As he sang, water dripped down the dark walls like tears. Tantalus forgot his hunger, thirst, and desire, and paused to listen. Ixion's wheels slowed, and for a moment he knew no torment. Sisyphus paused on his hillside and leaned against his rock for a spell. And the Furies, the great tormentors of Tartarus, shed their first tears. The song of Orpheus had stunned the entire underworld into silence, and it had moved the hearts of its masters. Hades called for Eurydice to be brought back to Orpheus. It may take time, he warned, as she walked slowly due to her wounded ankle. Orpheus must lead her out of the underworld, but he must not look back until they both emerged from the great crater of Avernus and bathed in the light of the sun once again. Slowly, silently, Orpheus makes his way back to the surface. Eurydice does not speak, but Orpheus can hear her light footsteps on the pathway behind him. Orpheus begins to grow anxious. Is it truly Eurydice behind me? Or is this the trick of the gods? Why does she not answer me or join me in song? Finally, Orpheus sees the light of the surface. They are nearly to Avernus. Orpheus quickens his step, forgetting that Eurydice still suffers from her wounded ankle. As soon as he steps into the sunlight, Orpheus turns to look at his bride. He sees her there, cloaked in shadows, her beauty still as fresh as upon their wedding day but their reunion lasts but an instant. Swiftly, Eurydice is drawn back as though pulled by a leash. Never turning, her eyes stay fixed on Orpheus as she recedes back into the darkness and disappears. Her final farewell to him is drowned in echoes as she is pulled deep into the yawning tunnel. Shattered at losing his wife a second time, Orpheus wanders the underworld in a stunned stupor, Charon, the boatman, will not let him cross again. 
Orpheus mourns at the banks of the river Styx for seven days, neither eating nor drinking. Finally, he makes his way back to the surface and the land of the living. Three years pass, and many women burn with passion for the beautiful young poet. But Orpheus flees from the love of women. Atop a barren hilltop, Orpheus begins a new song. As he plays, a grove of trees grows up around him. The trunks of trees encircle him, protecting him from the world, just as the poet had built a fortress, a fortress around his own broken heart. The end. Oh, whoa. <laughs> that is fantastic. Very beautiful. Peter. That was. Or I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. So I, I used um, Virgil's, not Virgil's, uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis uh, as the basis for this story. Cool. Um, but um, there's not a ton of imagery. Uh, he's got some beautiful language. Um, so I had to kind of fill in some of the blanks to flesh it out a little bit. It's a lot of fun. That's great. Hopefully his uh, legal team isn't still around. Yeah. <laughs> to, to nail us. We've got us on <laughs> Oh, no, that was excellent. That was really, really great. Um, well, fantastic. Cammy, hit it. Yes. I, I'm i also using Ovid's Metamorphosis. Uh, Peter and I <clears> thought it would be would make more sense if we were using the same source for this. And I'm using the Charles Martin translation. Orpheus' journey, journey throughout the lands, enchanting beasts and men alike, even the trees follow his song. Still deep in his breast, the loss of his love, fills him with the now dull ache that was almost flame before. He still, many years later, could not bear to know the silky touch of a female lover. One day, during his travels, he came upon the people of Bacchus, red-haired women dressed in the pelts of the animals they had slain in hedonistic ritual. Orpheus did not see his foes, even as they cried out in harsh mockery. It was soon that these women went to battle against the minstrel, angry that he would not take them or any woman as a lover. One of the group threw a wicked lance, but the vines so enchanted by Orpheus's music and his sweet song wrapped around the weapon and carried it quickly to the forest floor. She then picked up a stone, but our hero could charm even rock and it fell short. The worshipers of Bacchus, were now enraged that no weapon could harm this mortal. They began to play their flutes and horns of beast and dinning drums, so out of rhythm and out of tune that it filled the forest air with eerie unease. They began to cast the stones again, having made them deaf to Orpheus's magic. The grass below the poet, now dark with bloody stones, the animals were driven off by the strange noise the women made as Orpheus fell silent, these witches now surrounded by the now surrounded the enchanting man and dug their bare hands into his flesh, tearing it from the bone. Their madness didn't end with one man's blood. They quickly spotted several men working oxen in a nearby field, and they they went after them. The men fled in terror, leaving their oxen to the fate of Orpheus. When the fury had lifted, Orpheus's ghost rose from his body. The animals gathered once again to mourn their friend. The trees turned gray in reverence or sadness. Even the stones grieved his passing. His body in pieces scattered throughout the woods 
His head and lyre tossed the sea. A lucky snake found the head, but just as he was unhinging his jaw to swallow his meal, Apollo himself came down and turned the snake's jaw to stone. Orpheus, now aware of his condition, sank below to the Elysian fields, where he found his love Eurydice, and now, until the end of time, they can look upon each other, no matter who leads the path. Aww. That was that's what I have. But also, um, if you go a little bit further into Ovid, so this is from the beginning of Book Eleven. The Bacchidae, who were who attacked Orpheus, did not go unpunished. Mm. For when Bacchus heard of their mur- murderous foray, he turned them into the oak tree that we see today for their crimes. Oh, yeah. Okay, that was your best script ever. That was really good. Really, it was so short. But it was <laughs> it was descriptive. It was great. It was great. Some, it was some really great set pieces. I loved it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. I mean, I knew that he had been like killed by by the Bacchanay, but I didn't know kind of the specifics of it at all. So you really kind of brought that part of his story to life. And I like how he's reunited with Eurydice at the end. It's very nice. Yeah. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, Thanks, guys. Yeah, I'd so... Also, go ahead, oh, please. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was just going to draw attention. Like, it was remarkable to me, like, how how much attention, particularly in Ovid, there is on, on Orpheus, but how, like, you know, Eurydice has, like, no introduction at all. Like, I had to really dig to find anything yeah, on her. Yeah. And so she's, like, she's just kind of a shell of a character. And then we have the Bacchanae, who are just these, like, mad women <laughs> it's like <laughs> with the depiction of women in, in in this in this poem is not very uh not super positive welcome to our world yeah it's it's a, it's a brave new world <laughs> for you girls Ancient Greek world. <laughs> um you know it's funny so it, it i looked a little bit into orpheus and, and eurydice and um sort of their origins again i, I kind of wanted to focus on tartarus and just kind of going on but it looks like 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 there's people sort of posit that um, Eurydice was added essentially, or was not really added. She 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 was a later figure. Um, Orpheus is is pretty well established in ancient story, and um, it, it said he was either like the son of Apollo or was son of like an old uh, king of Thrace, and so it it. Like he, he, his exploits and his journeys and and fame as a epic poet, are a music a musician, are very well known. But then the the Eurydice that it's kind of believed was a little later. I mean, but it still is. I mean, she, like there's stuff from the fifth, like tapestry from the fifth and sixth century that features them together. And and I guess because she was um, clung to it, uh, to to his story, it helped her. Um, kind of gain popularity but that might be why she's not as obvious to find uh, information on because it, it looks like she was sort of added later to to the story uh interestingly enough hmm. but but she is included i mean uh the the big guys ovid and virgil both um uh they talk about tartarus but like she, she's she orpheus that you, you don't when you get to that later point she's she's there with them so Going into uh, further research on Tartarus and kind of Greek views 
of death and punishment is really interesting because um, it, it it really goes down to uh, the more you know, like the Christianization changed a lot of things in a lot of ways. But the cool thing is, is it, it, there's sort of the ancient Greek ideas still kind of maintained. Tartarus, though, specifically is a in like the, the mythology is what's kind of believed as a primordial being. So just sort of one of the things that was when things began uh, along with like Gaia, you know, earth. Um, and, but, but eventually like Tartarus, it kind of, it's meaning changed. Uh, eventually it, it was more of like a physical place. Um, I don't really know exactly when that sort of happened, but it, I guess like by the time we see it in literature, it's, it's certainly these, these, infernal regions as it's kind of referenced um and it specifically was there to originally lock titans and then eventually it was there to specifically lock uh, other world like like non-mortals um mm -hmm. but then eventually even then it grew to sort of be the antithesis of elysium which is sort of like paradise so it it it's very I don't know. It, it's very interesting, but but yeah, Pluto or Hades is the one who sort of uh, oversees it. Um, people are essentially sort of stuck there, uh, and and it, it, I just find it interesting because like I I see that Tartarus is is it, like in um, Hesiod's Theogony. Um, Tartarus is that's where they the, the explanation as a primordial figure, but. Uh, it, it it's he's not like a god or a titan it's it's like an elemental being um originally that mm -hmm. eventually transforms into this place um in fact like i, I saw uh I, it was britannica that specifically there's writings that describe tartarus as being an inverted dome um at, at first it had like two sections but then it just eventually became this inverted dome this this a cosmic sphere um that just divide that where earth is in between essentially like heaven and earth and tartarus so um that kind of gives me some like uh dante's inferno levels of you know being uh in there so um yeah that that must be a later like christian possibly yeah yeah, yeah. um well that's hesiod's theogony also kind of talks about that the the physical sort of nature of it Oh, okay. I I I, I want to say that like I think one of our like our kind of modern obsession with like the Greek underworld is like there are clear parallels between like popular Christian depictions of hell mm -hmm. um, with with you know with Tartarus essentially and and you see that like you mentioned Dante um, Dante's Inferno you know some of the characters that Dante encounters are you know, from like, um, oh, are from Greek myth, like, um, oh, Arachne is, is there, you know, like, um, so it's, it's, it's not, it's, it seems very logical that this, you know, ancient Greek, and then Roman, and then Christian, it's like, it's all the same stuff, you know, yeah, at least in our popular imagining of what it looks like, what it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, like, so one big thing, it, like, there, there's always been, I think this, kind of still rings true that in Greek mythology, it, the death was a journey. It wasn't the end. And I, I think that's like, you know, it sounds so weird that 
these people like Orpheus and, and they're, they're able, so many people are able to travel, you know, Odysseus traveled to, to hate, like, you, you know, it was a place you could go. Um, mm-hmm. It was a physical place, but it, your soul was the place, was the, 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 you know, the vessel that traveled it. It wasn't Disney World, though, but... Um, yeah, I was thinking, like, oh, prime <laughs> vacation spot. Right, yeah. Um, we're going On tourists. the banks of the River Styx. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily... Torture. It's not a permanent resting place. Like, you know, um, the the Virgil that I was reading earlier this week, um, you know, uh, Aeneas is down there, and he sees these people who you know, these spirits who've been there for like a thousand years and they're ready to rejoin the land of the living, like essentially be reincarnated. And he's looking at people who will be, you know, this, this, this man in the underworld will become this great figure in Roman history. Like it's, it's not necessarily where you go. Like it's, it's like a stopover. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And so I, I didn't get to read too much of it, unfortunately, cause it's, uh, the article was locked, but I read the abstract um, it's this article called death and grief in Greek in the Greek culture. It's got a few authors that are, uh, they look Greek. So I'm not, <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to uh, butcher those names. Um, but, uh, they sort of talk about how the, 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 the journey of the soul and how that idea really stayed the same through the Christianization of the, this area, um, and of the Greeks, uh, it just the way that the dead were uh, mourned kind of changed, and the way that burial processes changed. I mean, you know, there was a big, there is a big idea of, uh, especially in, in in ancient Christianity, of of like making sure your body was in a good position um, when it was buried, so that way, you know, when Judgment Day came, when you popped out, you were good. So, um, but even then, it was still like death wasn't the end. It was all a part of the journey. Uh, it just, I guess, like resurrection was just sort of added to to the idea. But it was still a matter of, but your soul will be there. Your soul's moving on. You're you're going to be good. Eventually, you go to your body, but it's it's about your soul and and kind of that focus on it. Um, so I wish I could have read the whole thing, but I I can't. I couldn't get access, and I didn't want to pay forty bucks. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I just I really liked that. Um, also, uh, Roman mythology sort of changed it. Um, Virgil, I, I mentioned, uh, like you know, he uh, wrote on it, uh, he, and, and that's and it was a very uh, in the Aeneid he describes it as a gigantic place. It's it's uh, like flaming rivers. Um, it, it's it locks you in. Again, we're thinking like almost like Dante's Inferno style of like physical punishment. Um, the, the Hydra, uh, guards it. it. It's all, it's very like fire, like the fire and brimstone versions of hell uh, that mm-hmm. we have. It, it, this is really, really it. Um, and so it, it looks like for them though, it, it's, it's just about containing the sinners. It's, I, it doesn't really mention like, uh, yeah, there, there's a specific place for the Titans. There's, there's specific places for the people, uh, you know, non-mortals and things like that but um it's extremely similar to the the greek style just with the very fire and brimstone kind of focus on describing it um and the last cool kind of reference to tartars that i found was in um uh, biblical pseudopigrapha 
is what it's called. This is um, a, a, a little Wikipedia section here that did a great job of discussing it. So Jewish pseudepigrapha and Jewish apocrypha, um, mainly from like the in the form of the book of Enoch, uh, Tartarus is actually explained in this. So this is like the Hellenistic Jewish literature um, from ancient Greece. And it would make sense that they would mention Tartarus. Um, and here it's, it's uh, understood um, from these writings that it is the place where 200 fallen angels are imprisoned. So it has a very specific role here. Mm. Um, but and it's, it's mentioned further beyond that too. Um, I, I can't like the book of Enoch is really complicated and I, it's kind of hard to go down beyond that. But um it it also has sort of section things. It might be might Book of Enoch might be a, a good future uh, Podicus Magnus. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot really going on there. And and, uh, and Brian and I were discussing kind of the Jewish connection uh, before before we started today. Um, you know, we we talk a lot about mythemes on this on this podcast about things that just seem to appear over and over again all over the world. And this this idea of like not looking back, like like where, you know, Orpheus is, is caution, like don't turn around until you're out. Um, and we see that again in in in, um, in the Old Testament with with Lot and Lot's wife, you know, turning into a pillar of salt. And mm -hmm. I just thought that was kind of interesting. And I, I I wanted to do some more research about like don't look back myths, but I I didn't have time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I absolutely get that. Um, yeah, there it, it, it is. Um, looking into, like, I kind of looked at the the Britannica article and Wikipedia articles on Eurydice just to kind of get myself in a little bit. But um, mm -hmm. there's clear parallels to um, Cammy and I have done a, the we did a Japanese creation myth talking of Izanagi and Izanami um, creating the world, and even um, uh, there's a, a Mayan myth of uh, Izamna and Ixchel, uh, as well as another an, an Indian myth. Um, and other myths where there are these uh, biblical kind of these love stories of um, the loved one taken away, having to go down to hell to get that or, you know, to the to the underworld to get that person um, and kind of it, it doesn't really seem to ever work out well. So um, <laughs> it didn't really work out well for Izanagi and Izanami. Um, but they, but in that story too, there, it was all, it was all about sort of the balance of creating and taking life too. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was really interesting. This one seems, it doesn't seem to have like a greater, you know, uh, it's moral. Not, it's, not a, it's not, yeah, it's not a big lesson there. It's yeah. It's... Just a dope story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, like, like purely it. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it was cool. I, I, I. My exposure to Tartarus, I think the word Tartarus was, I think, was from Persona 5 a couple years ago. That's what they call, like, the the place where you go to, like, to fight enemies. Um, so, but it is, it's a hellish place. And it's interesting to see it. it I don't know, you know, I'm wondering if, if an ancient Greek person, like, if they, like, like, someone pushed them, they would have said, go to Tartarus. I Like, I wonder if it was, you know, like, I wonder what it meant to them, you know, uh, in that way. Um, and like, I, I think about the Norse underworld or, uh, um, you know, the, the Norse ideas of, of, of that. Um, and I say Norse, but it's, it kind of goes on to other Germanic tribes too, but where it's basically you either die in battle with a sword in your hand, you go to Valhalla and you're, you know, you're, you're great for the, all of eternity, or 
you die any other way and you're essentially just in uh, Niflheim where you're just you're not like being punished, but you're you're just kind of like in the state of um, null. You're just nothing. And mm-hmm. so there it was just kind of like the, the only thing they feared was not going to Valhalla. And so um, I wonder if, if the Greeks, if there was this active fear of of earning your way into Elysium. And I guess that would have to be by pleasing the gods and getting the fates happy, I guess. There, I should go. Cami, you might know this better than I. But um, again, in uh, the Aeneid, when uh, Aeneas first enters um, the underworld, um, he he meets a lot of soldiers. Like he recognizes a lot of soldiers who he served with, mm. and they and they and they they seem to have like their own section of the underworld, and they're still like behaving like soldiers. Like they're still like in regiments, and they're still kind of organized, and they're still military men. So, do you know anything about that, Cami? About you know, I I think like you still plow the fields there too. I mean, I I you just keep I doing did, the same job that you. I'm have. pretty sure. Yeah. yeah, like I um I did do like a huge um like research paper on um it was really on Dionysus and and his relationship to Jesus. Um, because they're very similar in a lot of ways and early on in like greek and roman and i this is memory this isn't like i've researched this but i mean i did research it but i this is remembering sure. research from 10 years ago or whatever um but no you okay so basically like the elysian fields and all that stuff that was later added it wasn't something that was an early greek like sort of ancient sure. Greek. Yeah, I think so, I've come across that too. Yeah, so you didn't you? They started believing that maybe. I I'm not sure when it was honestly, but like that, um, maybe that time period where, um, it was like the turn. Like so, it's not B B C E anymore. It's C E now. Like maybe that time period. Um. I'm not really sure, though. I, I don't know when it started. I know that there were a lot of the festivals to Dionysus and stuff like that um, kind of played into how they viewed that kind of thing. And also, um, when the cults of Isis started popping up, that's when you really saw the idea of, like, heaven. And, and you have a place to go when you die. Because everybody, sort of at first, when you went when you died, you went to... Um, you, you kind of, I mean, I guess it was Tartarus. I don't know. Uh, they, they used to just call it Hades, I think, mm, but you went to sure. this place and, or, or um, Dis. yeah, this, yeah, something. And then, so you, you went to this place and you lost all your memory. Like you were just in this river of souls, basically. And it, there was nothing. But then when the ISIS cult started popping up, the idea of a salvation of a you can live a good life here and then have a good afterlife as a reward mm-hmm. started popping up and that i don't know the time period though like i could not tell you what time period that yeah was. i'm i'm i did a quick little look up and that's homer i think is one of the earliest references um specifically talking of it and and where it is at the edge of uh the ocean basically the, the world um and and it looks like 
that yeah what you do what you did in life um essentially and there, there's references in in antiquity uh to that uh that's that's what you do you you just whatever you did in real life you you do it again happily um and move yeah, on you so kind of continue the same process like you, right if you were a farmer then you plow the field right yeah um there's a lot there too we could do a whole episode on that <laughs> um <laughs> It is really interesting. And I mean, even like the, the Dionysus versus Jesus thing, like that was really, really interesting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there's so many, just so many parallels between the two. Yeah. Or I guess Bacchus for this reading, because we're, we're talking about Ovid. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, yeah, I like that. It, it's it's just interesting um reading like it, it, it says like it was more like a it it wasn't originally originally it was separate from hades but then it was kind of uh virgil's and Aida specifically put it as a part of the hades part of the underworld you know a section um so i guess uh, yeah like i yeah it's it's interesting Wh- where the underworld is where the afterlife is like mm-hmm. you know if, if elysium is at the end of the ocean could you could you believe that you would sail to it you know if you could make it but is it worth it you know did some guy go i'm gonna get i'm just gonna go for it you know <laughs> like i'm not waiting any longer i'm just gonna head down there um especially because it i mean you you know you'd be granted immortality basically it was almost almost like valhalla in a way you you would be chosen to to live and do whatever you wanted to forever but you would i don't know if you necessarily died in that case if you went to elysium so interesting it is interesting. Like, you know, I think, you know, as, growing up in a, in a Christian culture, it's like, you know, c- could you dig into the ground and find a, a path to hell? It's, it's not really part of our, of our, of our day-to-day discussions, but you know, in the Greek world, like there are landmarks, like I, I, I referenced a bunch of them in my, um, in my story where, you know, historically people believe that like this crater this avernus crater was a was a gateway and people you know i i imagine maybe went there and did did you know dug around and looked for it um i think that's really interesting that that there's a a physical geography to it that that was very real to a lot of people yeah as as as, you know people who grew up in a christian culture it's much more uh, nebulous (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's kind of like a a plane you can't get to until you're done Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Only the spirit can transfer to that place. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I doubt many like lay Greeks were going out there and like looking, you know, for it right. or anything. Um, yeah. But I mean, it kind of reminds me of the parts of the Caribbean uh, at World's End where he. Ends oh just, yeah. Yeah, topsy turvy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting way to think of it. Yeah. Um. No, yeah, that's it. It's 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 pretty interesting. Like I said, there's some really cool academic pieces that really kind of delve into it, and uh, the the Greek sort of views on uh, the afterlife have heavily influenced Christianity and, and even the modern Greek way of sort of thinking of life and death. But um, it's definitely changed too, though. Uh, it's just interesting for how many centuries the, that's how it was, where it was a being in a place and the way we think of it and who is in charge of it and stuff like that, uh, or at least for the Greeks 
and how then that transferred to the Romans and went on from there. So, and, and how it influenced Christianity from that point too. Absolutely. And how it influences us today. Yeah. Through Christianity. and that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, excellent guys. Well, uh, I think that about wraps it up unless someone else wants to pull out, uh, something else. I think that puts a really nice bow on it. Nice, nice, uh, nice wrap up. Yeah. Um, well, I do want to give a little shout out. Uh, Peter is doing on Monday nights at 9 PM, uh, the mystery after dark. So definitely check that out. If you haven't already, it's on our Facebook page, Yeah. which is just myth story. Just type it in. It's with an IE. Um, you found the podcast, so you know how to spell it and <laughs> just, just do a little search and, yeah. you know, add it and we'll, we'll definitely like add you to the group and everything. And then you can watch those as well. And yeah. I think we're trying to put them up on YouTube. Is that right, Peter? Yes. I'm getting much better about recording them on my phone. Some of them have been quite long and they just don't fit on my phone. Uh, but I've been right. trying to make my reading shorter. What I do is I read, um, some of the primary sources that we based our, base our, our scripts and our analysis on here. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I've been trying to keep them a little shorter so they're easier to record and I'll throw them up on YouTube as well. Yeah. Yeah. We, we should be able to do that. We're, we're trying to get more on YouTube, just working out some of the kinks behind it, but yeah, it should work out pretty well eventually soon. Well, guys, thanks Peter again for joining us. Cammy, you kind of have to be here, so that's it. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> No, it was really great work today, guys. I really appreciate listening about that. So uh, if you have any suggestions, um, like there's the Facebook group, but you can also email us mystery with an IE at gmail.com is a great way to reach us to you. But Facebook works really well as, uh, and you can hit any of us um, right on the page. So uh, please hit us up if you would like to contact us. Um, well, Peter, thanks. Cami, thanks. We'll see you next time. Oh, oh. oh.